This is Rod Allen. And this is John Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today, we welcome Judy Halbert and Linda Kayser. Uh, Judy Halbert and Linda Kayser have the privilege of leading the networks of inquiry and Indigenous education and the Aboriginal Enhancement Schools Network. They are deeply committed to achieving equity and quality for all learners and to networking for innovation and improvement, both in Canada and internationally. To that, to that end, they served as Canadian representatives to the OECD International Research Program on Innovative Learning Environments. They are also working with partners in Australia, New Zealand, uh, and England to grow the networks internationally. Judy and Linda have served as principals, district leaders, and policy advisors with the BC Ministry of Education in the areas of district improvement, rural education, literacy, and Indigenous education. They are the co-authors of the Spiral Playbook um, and Spirals of Inquiry and Leadership Mindsets and Innovation and Learning in, in the Transformation of Schools, and also co-author with Helen Timperley of A Framework for Transforming Learning in Schools. Innovation and Spirals of Inquiry in 2014. And I understand a new book about to come out, and I'm sure we'll find an opportunity to, to, uh, to, to chat about that. And when you were at the province level, they made you look good. You know, you, you talked about like the province this, the province that. That's, you know, Judy and Linda and their students and colleagues and so on and so forth. The, the province, my butt. With, with <laughs> Uh, without a doubt, um, I, I was I was thinking this morning um, uh, about having Judy and Linda joining us today, and and I can't recall a time since I've worked in BC that Judy and Linda haven't been uh, on the provincial scene here in the province, um, th and and that's just such an important fact of our British Columbia educational identity, I think, is Judy and Linda and networks, um, bringing people together, uh, finding ways to have uh, conversations about the things that matter, uh, and working um, with inquiry to make things better for, for our kids. Um, and it has been, Jal, as you said, um, uh, absolutely um, uh, a huge part of our provincial identity over the years. So Judy and Linda, welcome. Oh, thank, thank you. you very much. Yeah, thanks for that that great introduction. I'm smiling. Joel, what's uh, what's going on in your world right now? Before we jump in with our guest, you mean you like thinking about these days? What's happening south of the border, Rod? What's uh, happening? I, in I do. The border is opening up today. It's a momentous occasion. We can now travel back and forth across the border um, with the right paperwork, of course. Do you know anyone who wants to come in this direction? <laughs> <laughs> you are the land of Trader Joe's, so um, I'm, sh I'm sure there are many. <laughs> I see. Um, yeah, the thing I wanted to talk about uh, just off the top that I've been thinking about is, uh, you know, we had uh, elections last Tuesday, um, off-year elections, and uh, in a number of them, particularly in the Virginia race, there has been a lot of discussion of uh, critical race theory and uh, parents' ability or desire to control their own uh, schooling. Um, and so some people have said, you know, I, I think what's interesting about this is 
an issue that has been mostly within the education community is now becoming a general political issue, which uh, doesn't mean which means that almost by definition it's going to get uh, dumbed down and misinterpreted, and people will talk about it when they have no idea what they're talking about. But it also means that the sort of the days of just having a kind of maybe this was never true in Canada, but at least in the U.S., it seemed like there was almost like a a, a bubble around the kind of progressive education community where people talked about uh, equity and things like critical race theory and white supremacy culture and things like that. And I think this is just sort of a reminder that um, those are good things to talk about in advance, but that they have to be talked about in advance in ways that you know, you could talk to the whole world about them because that is what's going to happen inevitably with public schools one way or another. Do you think it's it's a, it's an issue as much with, you know, what you talked about what happened in the elections and some of the statements that were made by a couple of the candidates um, of par- parental control of, of what their child's learning? Or is it as much the, the critical race theory how it, and how it's being portrayed as the main issue? Well, in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe said um, out of context, I think, that, um, you know, parents shouldn't control what happens in schools, which I think he was trying to just make a sort of procedural point about school boards and state governments and all that. Uh, But it was sort of taken as, you know, these people want to take control of the schools and they're taking it away from you. So there was a a way in which it was mobilized as a, you know, you're being displaced in your own home kind of way. And I think that's why it caught so much fire. So I think it's the the intersection of those two things. The, the, the nanny state and uh, trying to control what your children are thinking and learning. I know you've been a lot, part of a lot of um, equity work in uh, BC, um, particularly with the indigenous community, have you had any kind of uh, pushback? Uh, I think there's been some uh, in BC uh, and in Canada, um, but nothing that I've seen or experienced that that matches what seems to be happening south of the border. Um, we 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 still seem to be able to have generally have. Um, intelligent, informed conversations about the issues. Um, I, I, I think there's maybe a bit of a trend he- heading heading your way uh, of, of less rational thought, and, and that's coming to play, I think, around uh, the anti-vax movement, um, where it seems to be um, less opportunity for can we get together and have a conversation about this like, like re- reasonable adults. Um, However, uh, uh, with with things around race in the indigenous community and um, uh, equity issues, we, we we seem to be in a in a in a pretty good place. Um, hopefully, we stay there uh, as this work continues and deepens. Um, you know, it's 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 always easy to to talk about things theoretically, and when when it when change actually begins to happen, um, sometimes um, people get a little more uh, intense. But uh, generally speaking, it, it's going pretty well, I think. But I wonder if Judy and Linda, uh, as they're deeply engaged in this work um, in British Columbia and around the world, want to weigh in on this. Sure, I'll, I'll jump in. 
I think the work is going well. I think there are pockets of, um, let's say, discomfort. And I think as Canadians, almost all of us have been shocked and horrified by some of the historical discoveries that seem to be um, brought to attention in, in very graphic ways. Um, and that's causing everybody, well, everybody, I think, um, most people, to really think through who we are as Canadians, the kind of history that, that we haven't acknowledged before. And in some strange way, from my perspective, I think that's made it easier for the educators, um, particularly the Indigenous educators who are um, acting in persuasive roles and their allies to make the case for change in schools. And I think it's it's mobilized people behind the work because people have realized that educators, we can make a big difference and we want to. The one thing that, that I'd add to that is that there had been, you know, historically lots of work on around multiculturalism and the question came up, oh, why should we be preferencing indigenous cultures over Korean or Southeast Asian or whatever. And I think that the response to that has been really, really helpful. And, and uh, I really look to the work of Lorna Williams and Joe Crona in that regard of saying that, that other cultures uh, have places in other parts of the world, but our indigenous people and cultures, they're just here. Uh, so, so if not here, then where? And I, I think just the simplicity of that understanding has helped um, move away sort of the Practice of why are we privileging one group over, over another? As you think about discussions that you've had about equity and work that you've done to advance equity, particularly with Indigenous people in BC over the years, are there um, frames or ways of thinking or ways of working um, that might be productive for some of your? colleagues in America and other countries around the world, because I have to say, you know, I've now visited a few times and spent some time with you and spent some time with Rod and with other folks. And in, in many ways, it seems like you are quite a few years ahead of the kinds of discussions that we're having here in the in the United States, that the atrocities are fairly similar, but the um, the place in the journey of the discussions, uh, you all seem to have started sooner and come to a more constructive place. I don't know if you'd accept that, but um, I guess the, the big question is more the, the, the one I asked before, which is, are there certain kind of frames or ways of working that you've found productive through the years? It's a great question. And, you know, I studied um, American history as well as Canadian history. So I, I think your analysis of the two places is bang on. Um, one, we have found no matter where we go, because we're doing quite a lot with Sweden too, um, that the First Peoples Principles of Learning, it's a very simple looking document, but they're, anyway, you've said yourself from, from your visits to Cowichan and other places, those deep learning principles, when they become a way of life in a setting or in a whole community, uh, things change for the better. So that's that's one I would absolutely call out. And I don't think there's, you know, we have some American colleagues through Mill Scholars and other places. Everybody who sees those principles, England, 
um, whether they think they have indigenous populations or not, if it's on their mind or not, they resonate with, with that holistic view of learning. And I think it's a very helpful frame for people to have be, become part of who they are. I think the more we deepen that work, I think the better we all become as educators and also as people. So that's one. Two, I think, um, you know, the spiral of inquiry has some commonalities with design thinking because it always, uh, our, our, the inquiry process that we use always starts by interviewing young people. So it has an honesty to it. It doesn't start with big data sets or something from far away. It starts by talking to an individual learner and saying, you know, who are the people and who are the adults in this building who believe in you and that you'll be a good person to make a contribution? And then what are you learning? Why does it matter? And you can learn so much just, <laughs> just from those two questions. And I think, again, anywhere we've put those ideas out for people, uh, whether it's Coursera or in person or on Zoom, that's made sense to, as a matter of fact, we're doing some work with Hawaii now, and they want to do their work in such a way that it will affect all the continent. And it just, it makes sense to people to start with uh, individual learners and then collective learners and then a, a collective conversation. So that framework I think is, is uh, could be incredibly helpful uh, to, to many, many parts of, of the United States. And it is popular and, and used extensively in our province, the Yukon and parts of Canada. Um, and then the third one, I think that we've just been working with recently is, you know, is based on thinking fast and slow and it's a decision-making um, making playbook. And again, I think that's a, a frame because I think uh, there's been a tendency and you said it in, in one of these podcast series, you know, that there's so many things that schools and school systems are doing, you know, way too much. And can you do fewer things? Well, our answer is you have to do fewer things. You know, at most you can really only do a couple of things really well. And the decision-making framework is a way of slowing thinking down <laughs> so that you can make more intelligent decisions, which really fits with indigenous ways of thinking because it's part of their culture to think about, you know, what, what's the effect of this decision for the next seven generations or hundred years. And that's a very good discipline. And it, yes, it takes a bit longer, but you, you know, you can move faster because you've taken that, that long, long pause. So those three frameworks, I think would be incredibly helpful to um, our friends and colleagues in American settings. And I just add one thing around that. It's the way that we've conceptualized leadership and contribution and power. Um, and so over the last, She's almost um, 15 years. We've worked with now about 800 grad students at the master's level and now at the post-master's level at, at UBC. And in, I think that one of the real advantages that we have in uh, British Columbia is that principals and vice principals are required to have a master's degree. And so we, we worked really hard to develop programs that had a strong indigenous focus. And that's become, and Rod is now teaching in one of those programs too. Uh, that's become an important part of the, um, kind of evolution of leadership in the province. And the program that we're involved with now at, at UBC is cross roles. So we're saying it's leadership by contribution, not by role. So we have in our programs, teachers, principals, deputy ministers, uh, superintendents, all working together and learning together. And I think that that 
as a kind of as a mindset about how we think about leadership is helping to create um, more of an open dialogue that, that I think is really helpful. And I totally agree with Linda around, around the shared frameworks of the first people's principles of learning, the spiral of inquiry and the decision framework is helping to develop some coherence across, um, you know, we're not in Nirvana, but we are we are making progress. And I think there's encouraging signs. And the last thing I'd say is that the power of, of networks uh, and the way that we have conceptualized networks, which is quite different than than um, in many other places, I think has helped is helping us as well. You're famous for networks. When, when you hear the word network, Judy and Linda's names are are, are right there next to it. Um, and I've come across a number of um, beginning teachers who talk about spirals of inquiry, who talk about networks and 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 don't know that it has, stems from work that, that comes from you two. It's just sort of part of what schools do. It's part of the of the of um, of how of how we operate, and what I think one of the strengths of this province. So, um, take us back a little bit. Why what what took you to this notion of networks in the first place? Why is why was that such a uh, a big idea for you too? Well, let me let me start with this, and then then Linda can can chime in. Um, initially, we were both secondary school principals, um, and as women secondary principals in BC at that time, uh, it was kind of a lonely job. So we we formed a group. We had quite a rude name for it, but it was a group of women principals that got together and shared ideas, and it really sustained us uh, during some hard times. Kind what was the rude name? Boobs, boobs. <laughs> but we think it's a, we think it stood for uh, you know brighter organized something. <laughs> it was bosses. But I think we it, put it in our time yeah. time text as Bob's. Uh, yeah, it was a bunch bunch of, of bossy secondary bitches, really. But anyway, uh, my um, mother said I'm not to talk that way. <laughs> uh, then you know, um, kind of. Just over 20 years ago, we were invited to a meeting at the ministry. The performance standards had been developed. We were really keen on assessment for learning. The knowledge was out, but teachers weren't applying it. And we had we were given the opportunity in two different places of the province. I was in Metro. Linda was in the Fraser Valley. Could we get teachers to voluntarily use the performance standards? And there was sort of an ironic part because there was another person at the meeting. Uh, we were all offered a little bit of money. So um, that person got $40,000, Linda got 15 and I got 20. And I thought, this doesn't make any sense. Let's put our money together. We'll almost have as much as the third person. And we thought um, the only way of doing this work is for principals and teachers to be working together. It needed to be invitational. It needed to be voluntary. It needed to be simple. And it needed, needed to be, um, there needed to be sort of a rhythm in place. So that's how we started. And and it's just grown since there. So now we've got, and we've maintained the same basis that it's always invitational. Um, schools are gonna tell their story. They're gonna tell the impact of what they've done. We'll make their stories public and we'll thank them. So we have scrambled in a variety of ways, as Rod knows, to find funding to be able to thank school teams at the end of the year of inquiry for the work that they've done. Um, initially, we were able to provide $1,000. Now we're providing 500 because we've got lots of schools. But it, just that importance of 
expressing thank you has been really, really important. Uh, the other thing I think around networks uh, uh, is that, you know, we've all been in lots of different schools and in every school, Jal, I know that in your study on, um, on deeper learning, you found bright lights in every school. Uh, I'm expecting that you did. There was something that was great in every one of those schools. It just wasn't connected or pervasive. And so what we've tried to do through the network is find those people um, who care the most, who are kind of on the leading edge of the profession and give them a community so that they can develop the strength and the confidence by being part of a team rather than being an isolated bright light. I don't like that term, but an isolated leader in their own school. So, so those are some of the key things. And then as it's grown, you know, now we have, have networks in um, four parts of Australia, um, Madrid, Barcelona, Sweden, England, um, Hawaii is now coming on, but it's always followed the same model that it has to be invitational, voluntary, relatively simple and focused on changing the experiences of kids. So that's it in a nutshell. So I'd love to unpack, uh, I get the voluntary uh, point, which seems critical, and I get that it has to be s simple. I think the literature and diffusion would tell us that. Um, you said earlier, you said um, the rhythm. Um, I'm interested in the rhythm question because schools have no time and yet there is a certain kind of rhythm to a school year and summer and so forth. So I wonder if you could unpack a little bit about the rhythm. And then I guess um, the the changing the student experience part, as you know, Sarah and I are, Ben Rod and a lot of other folks we work with, but you know, we, we found we also found some schools that did some wonderful things, but um, you know, instruction is like deeply baked into the way in which people think of their identities as teachers, and so trying to change some of that is not. It's easier to you know build clubs or empower students or do an end of the year project or any sort of thing that doesn't mess with how you teach math or English. But then when you get into actually changing teaching, then it, it raises a lot of people's hackles. Um, so yeah, those two questions, one about like, what sort of rhythms did you find worked? And uh, what did you learn about actually changing instruction? Well, I'll, I'll talk about the changing instruction part. Linda, talk about the, the rhythm. Uh, initially, we were focused on uh, reading, writing, numeracy, and social responsibility. Those were the four performance standards that kind of started this whole work. So it was all around changing um, instruction. We call it like changing the learning experience in those core areas and using the performance standards as a, uh, in a formative way to demonstrate the growth per kid. And we call it GPK. How much growth per kid are you getting through, through the course of your inquiry. So we started with the classroom. Um, since then, the work has, has evolved and now with the focus on, on indigenous understandings, you know, we've broadened that, but the core is always what's happening in the relationship between um, the teacher, the learner and the curriculum. And, and um, coming back to you know, what Linda said about the core question around the spiral of inquiry is what's going on for our learners and how do we know? So it's, it's really being intentional about listening to learners about their learning experiences in the settings over which we have control within the schools. So that's that part of it, and Linda. Well, well, before we get to the rhythms, could I just drill down one, one more level? If, if I were a teacher out there and I were listening to this, let's say I'm a literacy teacher and I want to, 
you know, grow, increase my growth per kid, but do it in a humanistic way. Um, Like, can you say a little bit about what that might look like? Well, maybe, maybe I'll jump in here because uh, before we had the, the network that we have now, I spent a decade working with um, a young writers network in the province. And the goal was to improve writing instruction. So it was right in that wheelhouse that you're talking about, Joe. And we're fortunate in BC that we've just got some absolutely fantastic consultants who make their living um, providing models of learning um, that are that the people want to embrace because they're so good at what they do and presenting it. And moving people along a continuum of from, you know, maybe boring instruction to really meaningful uh, instruction. So we had quite a bit of networking experience in the province before the performance standards came along. But really, the biggest, the, <laughs> the biggest change, and if I could wave a wand, um, you know, we've, we've seen Ron Berger's video day <laughs> probably a hundred times and maybe shown it, you know, I don't know how many times. I never, I never get tired of it. I, I just love hearing those young people talk. So one of the things about the performance standards is it leads you directly to assessment for learning. And I think assessment for learning in terms of innovation or engaging learning um, is a game changer for people. And, and so getting people interested in assessment for learning, even a single step, and that's why the question about what are you learning and why is it important, most of the young people that we talk to, if, if the instruction is kind of old fashioned, they will say, I am doing page 29. You know, they don't know what they're learning and they don't know why it's important. So asking that question, uh, you know, and then providing uh, Ron Berger's books and videos and, you know, the wonderful array of materials that he's put together and his mindset that says, let's get, you know, more outdoors and let's get more meaningful work is is the next step. And, you know, the, the research on risk, the University of Auckland has, in our view, the best research around how you actually get professional learning that has a positive impact on kids, you know, Teachers need some time, but what they need are wonderful models and, and the belief that they can do it. And if you watch that videotape, pretty much everybody we've shown it to, whether it's a kid or an, a teacher or a, um, a TA, a support worker, uh, or a school principal, can see that kids can do quality work. And when we're talking about equity, we think we should be talking about quality at the same time, because one of the one of the secrets is getting your strongest people with the kids who need it the most. <laughs> That's a quality conversation as well as an equity conversation. But moving to assessment for learning, the you know, as part of the journey to to more innovative practices like Mills Bay and other places that you've seen, um, I think is it's a secret ingredient and one that we need to use way more and not think of it as oh, we did that, you know. <laughs> one superintendent told me, oh, well, we've stopped doing that because now we're doing 21st century learning. And I think, you know, give your head a, a rattle. Like this is 21st century learning because you're moving towards coaching and, and getting stronger. So one of the big, one of the big secrets I think is, is uh, having assessment for learning part of everybody's repertoire. And I think it's, a, it's like vitamin C used to be considered really important. It's like that. Um, and just a, a word on the rhythms. I think, I think sometimes, um, particularly perhaps south of the border, 
uh, you know, we see examples of it, that the books and the models, that's why I'm looking forward to your design meets the real world book. Um, they're, they're too elaborate. They're too expensive. Uh, you can't, you know, going into it, it's not going to be sustained. The money's too much up front instead of a recognition towards the end when people have made a commitment. Um, we've we've done quite well with, with our network meetings being once a term because those are sort of um, enthusiasm building experiences. And we've been able to keep that even in an online environment. Once a term, like, like yeah, August? Once in the fall. January? And- once in the fall and once in the January, February, March, and once in the spring. And people count on it now. And, you know, our annual symposium, which you've come to, you know, it's in May and it's going to be in May this year. We're still going to keep it virtual so that people don't have to worry about diseases or travel. But, you know, we hope a couple of years from now. So we're we're planning all of those things. And those simple rhythms, that's, you know, they're not, they're simple because they're not so many activities that that you're going crazy. And then then the, the strong leaders um, are able to be imaginative around how they, they create time at the school level. So, you know, uh, without going into great detail, they, they don't have a ton of money. It's not like the Australian principals who seem to have, well, from our point of view, endless resources, uh, financial resources. But people are imaginative and they find ways to free teachers up at times that they can think when they're not tired. Never mistake uh, simple for um, for not being elegant, right? I mean, I, th- I think it's um, the work is well. You say you know you try to keep it simple, yes, but it, but it's also very elegant and uh, and well connected. Well, thank you. Uh, just uh, the the other thing on the rhythm is that you know teachers operate on a September to June rhythm, and and we need to to respect that. So we know that September is you know no people are just scrambling to get things going. So we ask them to to let us know what the focus for their inquiry is sometime around this time of the year and then to work through it and at the end of the year to let us know what they've done what they've learned and what they're going to do next and what the reflections are on what they've accomplished so you can maintain the same same focus for two or three years but we're going to think about a school year and organize things within that which i i just think um, is helpful and i think you told me once i was asking you some difficult question about like how could I get someone to change from A to B? And you said, that's really not the right way to think about it. Um, and just like get them to ask some question that in some way related to their students. And I said, well, what if I don't think that's a great question? And you said, it doesn't matter. It's their question. And if they ask it and they pursue it, it will lead to another question. And inevitably, if your question is like, closer to the core of the student experience, they will move towards that as time goes on. Is that right? Yes. I'm a little slow, but I I gradually pick things up. Yeah. Well, it's about the, you know, patience and time. Like, you know, when when people ask a question, you think you, you know, have an internal eye roll thinking, um, you know, that's not going to be all that productive. If they stay in community, they will get they will get smarter and they'll move from that at a concrete stage of development to a more self-reflective stage. Uh, I think we see that in the adult development literature and we've certainly seen it in practice. So it's, it, it, it pays off, but it can't, you have to wait. 
I do have a good story about Ron Berger and Eleanor Duckworth that relates to what we were talking about since you brought up Ron, which is that Ron went with, um, uh, invited Eleanor Duckworth, who studied with Piaget and did the having of wonderful ideas and all that sort of stuff. And she came to one of Ron's classes and she asked one of Ron's fifth grade students when he was still teaching in Shutesbury, uh, you know, to explain something that this kid was doing scientifically and the kid explained it. And Eleanor said, you know, could you explain it again in a, in a different way? And so the kid, like, you know, he went from words to materials and he started trying to demonstrate it. And then he got through that. And then Eleanor said, can you, can you show it to me in a third way? Is there like another way you could explain what you're doing and why? And the kid, like, you know, went back to the drawing board and came up with something different. And then uh, he goes over to Ron and he says, your friend is very nice, but she's kind of slow. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, greater meets uh, yeah. researcher of Piaget's processes, yeah. but yeah. he just doesn't, just doesn't get it yet. Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. But, but there's probably hope for her. There's, there's probably, yeah. probably, yeah. probably. Yeah. Tell me about the fast and slow decision framework. I knew about the other things you said, but that's newer to me. Well, we, we, um, uh, you know, you're, you're familiar with Daniel Kahneman's work and, and so are we, and, and we'd been saying within the network, you have to go slow at first. We've said, said it's almost like a dance. It's slow, 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 and then quick. So, so we need to uh, upfront be thinking about how do we slow down the thinking so that when we actually move to action, we're moving to more informed action than just leaping at something. So that was kind of part of our thinking all along um, through, you know, through the evolution of the network. And then one of our, our network leaders, um, Brooke Moore, who is a, a teacher leader in the network and now a, a district principal in, in Delta, worked with um, some of her, actually friends of her dad's, uh, who was a decision-making scientist. And they, they developed a, a decision framework for kids uh, that we thought fit perfectly with the, the spiral. So now we combine the two and it, it's just to, uh, to apply Kahneman's thinking at a classroom level to help kids make better decisions, but we're also using it with adults to help them make better decisions as they move through, through the spiral. So now, now we've got um, uh, some kids, some leadership kids that are really using that effectively to tackle um, important issues that they've identified themselves combining the decision framework and the spiral. So that's kind of where it, where it came from. Uh, I think that the potential for that work is kind of limitless right now. We see sort of student leadership um, way, way is the place that we need to be putting our time and effort and energy. Brad, what, what do you think about that? Because I feel like we're often um, urging people to have a bias towards action um and we we fear people retreating to their i know this isn't what you're saying uh judy uh but we we fear people retreating to their study or their office and then having another meeting and another meeting and another meeting and another meeting and we're like why don't you just go talk to some kids and try some stuff and you'll learn some things much more than you'll learn through having another meeting uh, uh rod what 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 did you make of slow and fast in your practice 
Well, I, th I think the, the, the term, um, I didn't coin it, but I often use is courageous patience. Sometimes it takes a lot of courage to go slowly uh, and to let things develop. And I think often when we go too, try to go too quickly in, in lieu of uh, taking our time and gathering uh, having conversations with 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 kids um, and with with a variety of um, stakeholders, for want of a better term, um, leadership just makes decisions instead of we're going left or right. We're 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 doing this, we're doing that, um, which so often leads to a period of a furious spinning of wheels, but not actually getting anywhere. So it looks like people are busy, but they're not really getting anywhere. But by um, adopting the process that, that Judy just described, um, where you're really using good evidence, you're really engaging everyone in the work. You're you're help, you know, you're you're co-developing the the case for change and so on, and really listening to, to young people. And I agree with Judy. Uh, I think student agency is is the absolute um, uh, place we need to really be spending a lot of time right now. Um, it leads to deep, meaningful action that isn't just going to get changed over in, in three months or four months or if the principal changes or whatever that leads to long-term, deep change, which is really what what we need to, to, to shift systems. Um, on the other hand, you can't just do, you know, sit around and, you know, look at your navel all day. Um, so there is there is action and things you can be doing, which is which is where I love um, people using the spiral because it sort of spirals within spirals. There are smaller spirals within bigger spirals. And uh, that's such a powerful um, a framework that Judy and Linda have developed. Um, so there's lots of things to stay active with, um, but not chasing your tail uh, and things that will le eventually lead to uh, some of the big systemic changes that we need. I agree with, with what you both said. I think maybe it's a way of um, conceptualizing sort of micro actions, you know, micro, like, we find that the places that skip out talking to learners do much more shallow work <laughs> because they haven't had that life-changing experience of actually talking to five or 10 or a hundred or a thousand young people and hearing from them. And once people do that, they change. I mean, that's what we found. So that is an action step. And then if they find kids who don't have anybody who has their back, then we say you must act immediately. You must do two by 10, two minutes of conversation a day for 10 days in a row, which we learned from Michael Fullen's work in Ontario. So you've got to take action. Don't wait for the other more reflective stages of the spiral. Just go ahead. We know that it works to get to know kids and, and form a relationship with them. So if you think of those as micro actions, Jill, then absolutely, you know, act. Don't sit in your office reading a book about mm -hmm. You know, hey. inquiry. <laughs> you know, take take some action. Like I didn't know that Richard Elmore was in school one day a week. I mean, that's that's great. You know, that's an action, and it, and it's made a big impact on the on the culture of Harvard education. I'm sure. So those are good things. But that we also live in a culture that kind of I don't know whether it worships technology, but you know, I think some of the nastiest words ever spoken is you know move fast and break things. Well, you know, gee, let's break democracy. You know, let's break human relationships. Let's, let's break human decency. It's it's not a good way to live. And the, the indigenous principles about, you know, respect and reciprocity, that has to be a part of our work. And that means that we need to slow things down before we 
we, um, you know, take absurd actions or cruel actions. 100% agree. And sustainability, too. If you treat people with respect, then things will hold for longer periods of time. Uh, okay, so I have a hard question for you. Shane Safir and Jamila Dugan came up with this book on street data, which has a lot in common with your conversations with kids. And then I was talking with uh, with Ron Berger, um, and he said, I really respect that work, but some people are using that work to say that the quantitative data isn't important and uh, that the quantitative data is part of white supremacy culture and uh, measures deficits and so forth, which is all true. Um, and Ron was trying to make a case for, you know, I would say Ron's certainly in favor of talking to kids, but of a sort of more holistic approach to looking at lots of different kinds of data. And uh, yeah, I've just, I've, I've been caught in this conversation among my progressive friends from folks who feel like the quantitative data we have is holding us back from more systemic transformation on the one hand to folks who feel like, yes, we need a pendulum shift, but you know, kids should still be able to read and do math and that most of these tests measure fairly, fairly basic things and that, you know, that they should be part of the part of the equation. So I wonder um, with your wise Canadian perspective, what you make of this uh, debate. Uh, Judy, why don't you go first this time? I think Linda and I are both laughing right now. If you could see our faces, like my face is aching. We had this conversation really intensely last night over dinner with, with a colleague um, who would be representing the same perspective as Ron. Um, I, I would say we actually need both. Um, so I agree with Shane, we need the street data that's, you know, the, as close, what we've seen is that the, that the evidence that is as close to the individual learner as possible is the evidence that shifts teacher practice. So we, we need that uh, and we need to honor and respect it. And for us, the starting point is listening to kids. It's not the end point. Like that's where we just say, let's start there, get a little bit more curious and then look out from there. Uh, we also had a conversation with Denise Augustine last week around assessment prevention and she said that she has come to the place of recognizing that some formal provincial assessments are really necessary, that we're not going to reach our equity and quality goals if we don't have that kind of data. So here's two very different perspectives. And I think that from, uh, from where we sit, we come down kind of in the middle that we, we need we need the quantitative data, but it has to be the best possible um, data that we can get. The assessments have to be as culturally responsive, all of the things that we know about good assessment. Uh, and we need that street level data, you know, Shane would call the, the provincial data, the satellite data, right? So yeah, we need that, but we also need for us as close to the learner as possible. We know, at least from our experience, that we've seen that teachers become much more curious when it's their kids, their classrooms, their information, and something over which they can control. Then they become more open as opposed to just saying, well, that, that's from somebody else. That, that assessment means nothing to me. It's just going to be used uh, improperly. So boo on it. So that's... Linda will say it much more articulately now that she's had a chance to think, well, I just blot it on. And you don't, you, you are Judy and Linda, but you don't have to agree. So. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> we were joking it out at breakfast over the dinner conversation. So <laughs> it's good. Yeah, I think we're in a really, it's a great question, Jill, first of all. And I love it 
you know, an argument between Shane and Ron. That's a pretty exciting thing with you listening in. And it's the most polite and, argument and, ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you two in referee shirts listening to it. Um, I think we're, you know, a year ago, I would have been um, not, I don't, I try not to be cynical, but I would have been skeptical about where we are in the innovation world about, you know, which is kind of the progressive world to some degree. Um, I, I just kept hearing new metrics over and over and over again, but I didn't see any you know, that were usable, that could be used at scale, that could help. Uh, but now I think we're beginning to get some examples. I think I think the global community is is moving on that. And I think Sandra Milligan's work at the University of Melbourne is incredibly helpful. Uh, her, her paper about it is, you know, gives me confidence that we are moving in a direction where we can say something intelligent, uh, both at the level of the classroom teacher, but also in, you know, like, how are we doing? You know, we we spend, well, we invest a lot of money in public education and we have, uh, I think, a citizen <laughs> obligation to say we're, we're expending this money wisely. So absolutely, I think you want the really good assessment. And I think all of the systems, the ones that are considered high performing, do a really good job of uh, making sure that teachers, if they're looking at a writing sample, they know what good writing looks like and they know how to move it along a continuum. That's why the learning progressions are so helpful. And then I think on the large scale assessments, we need to get, we need to, that's where we need to use the power of technology. And I, I liked what New Zealand had at one point where as a classroom teacher, I could decide when JAL was ready to do the you know, year four assessment. I didn't have to do it on a day in May where everybody's sitting there and sweating. I could do it in a more responsive way. And I think we're moving closer to that. So I'm encouraged. I think we need to keep um, doing good things like that. And I'm also encouraged by, you know, we've been working with the Brooking people on the uh, family engagement playbook that they've created. And so we've met some more American educators and, and I love the work uh, that's going on in Pittsburgh with um, remaking and learning. And I think, you know, just just having, you know, we believe in big hard goals too. Like I love it that they're reframing Pittsburgh as Kidsburg, you know, the best place in the world to raise a kid so that, you know, you bring the science world together with the, you know, the art galleries and all of the community dimensions. And then the kindness of, of uh, Fred Rogers as a ethos. I think that's, you know, I think that's measurable, and I think that there's um, becoming imaginative ways to show that. And I think some of the initiatives in the states are actually right at the cut, good cutting edge of having transcripts that show those kinds of things. So I'm encouraged about it. I don't think it's, I don't think it has to be like you know phonics versus whole language. I think it's an intelligent mix. Rod, what do you think? I, I completely agree with 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 what Linda and Judy have just said. It's so much of it. It, it isn't just the tool. Although it is that trying to make sure that those are uh, really uh, good quality assessments, but it's how it's used, and and information can be used as a club, or it can be used to be supportive, and um, you know we see examples both ways of of how of how uh, evidence can be used, um, and so just trying to create the culture where we use evidence in ways that is supportive and helpful uh, to 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 move forward rather than being used to. To, to denigrate or wag fingers or 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 show why whatever it is what strategy does doesn't doesn't work and isn't helpful um so do you lift people up or do you or do you tear people down uh, i think it's as much about culture as it is about the about the 
as about the tools. Tell us a little bit about Sweden. That's some new territory for you too. What's uh, what has drawn you to Sweden? You know what? I I think one of the things that's really been interesting, like you know, we some of our other colleagues in Canada and internationally have network communities. Uh, ours always seems to to form organically, which we think is is really fun and and nifty. So when we did our doctorates, there was a Swedish woman in the in the program that we were engaged with. Uh, she was teaching at a university. She was a principal and she was teaching at a university in Sweden. And she asked to come um, to British Columbia and visit um, a school district. And she did, uh, one that she'd visited before. And she came out to UBC to find out what we were doing. And we did a session with, she brought 20 principals with her. Anyway, she got intrigued. And then she came to London where we work with the whole education network. And so what we were doing there. And then essentially she's gone back to Sweden found a colleague because we do think it's good to have two people to to run networks so you at least have some conversation on a regular basis about what you're doing and um, and she's she's just done a number of absolutely remarkable things I think I think it's hard to keep up with uh, Ingela and uh, Lillimar but I think you know they're almost at the place of of having the spiral built into the formal leadership program for for school leaders and they've started a network in Stockholm and they, as I said, it's honestly, Rod, it's hard to keep up and it's really exciting, really strong work. And they're, you know, going at the right pace <laughs> because like almost everybody who's, who's a network leader in the other countries, they've, they've been principals, good principals, but the two people leading the work in Hawaii are in that. And, you know, there's something about, you know, as a principal, as you well know, you have to make practical and hard decisions. You have to choose between two good things. And Joel, you know, just coming back to that, like, you also do need to learn how to focus and, and make, make a decision. I remember when Rod was up in his northern district, one of the things I thought he did that was just great was the province was saying you have to have most people were saying you have to use this data source for your information about whether kids can read or not. And he said, Rod told the schools, you can use, you know, some things that you think make sense, but you have to kind of link them to the performance standards because that's something that everybody valued. Um, our union valued them. We valued them. The intellectual community valued them. So it's, it's that decision-making power, I think, with the networks that really helps to, to make it go. But the Sweden work is fun. And one of the things that we learned that is incredibly useful um, that, I, that we're trying to build into everything that we do, um, the Swedes have a tradition called FIKA, F-I-K-A. And it's a half an hour break. It's like, you could think of it as a glorified recess. But in the schools that we visited, everybody stopped. There was always something sweet and delicious to eat and really fantastic high quality coffee. And, and Swedes, who you think of it as some reserve, throw themselves into this half hour conversation. And, you know, they don't talk about, you know, the workshop or whatever, they talk about life. And it's just such a beautiful culture. So I think that's, again, part of sort of slowing things down or changing the pace. Like we tended to be people, okay, well, you've got 10 minutes to go to the washroom and, you know, hurry up somebody and hurry back for this great information. Um, I think Fika has been a, a good lesson for us as, as 
as people and as network cultures. So the, the, the Swedish work really just grew organically out of relationships and connections. And I think that, you know, when we think about how, how do things spread, it's that way. So we know somebody, they come, we connect them to the work in England, we go to Sweden, the connections have continued. Now there's a, an international group of network leaders who are all volunteers, like nobody's getting paid to do this work, but they're just doing it out of kind of love of the, of the work. And we've created um, a friendship group that, that really sustains everybody. Yeah. We also have become uh, persuaded of that model, the Deeper Learning Dozen that Rod and I have been leading um, with John Watkins and other colleagues. You know, some of the folks from that group have moved on to new districts or new states. And we've said, okay, like, let's, let's just welcome them into the, the group. And um, I really do think this sort of organic network of networks is the only approach to spread that I've ever seen that actually seems to work with any level of quality and take up. I remember once uh, talking to a guy at the Kennedy School who was a detective by training and then had become a professor. And his thing was community policing. And I said, have you done any work in the US? And he said, no, life is too short. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, like, I know how to do good community policing, and I only have so many years on the earth. So, you know, I just sort of like wait for the winds to align in some place. And when the winds have aligned, then I should go and I help them learn how to do it. And that's not quite the same as your model of change. But I did think there was something very sort of smart and strategic. He was not going to spend all of his time sort of pushing uphill. Right. Yeah. It's very much in the family of what we do. Yeah. In the family, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask one more question, which is about um, the, the unit of change. So if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, you're, you're both saying that um, there are certain principles of uh, leadership, learning, spirals, indigenous learning that are, you know, really relevant to people across different roles in the systems and that uh, also that lots of different people can be leaders within systems, not just people who have, you know, formal roles at the school or district level. But within that, it does seem like you've made a pretty big bet on school leaders as and their teams, maybe, as the kind of unit of change. And I wonder if you could say something about um, why you picked, if, if that's correct, like why you put the emphasis uh, there. Um, part of the context is within our Deeper Learning Dozen, we're having uh, ferocious uh, discussions about whether we, um, whether districts or schools, I mean, the answer to all questions is always both and, but sort of where to put uh, emphasis. And it seems like you, you landed on the, on the school. So anyway, I just wondered some of your thinking about that. I think that we landed on school because that's where the action is for the kids um, and where the, the, the daily experience um, can be directly influenced by what the adults in the building do. So, so that, that is, that's where we, we put our, a lot of our emphasis. However, we also really believe in school districts and, and I find it, um, uh, you know, I am, uh, will fight hard to maintain districts in, in British Columbia um, because I think that there's a place for community identity and for kind of a collective around, um, you know, is really important too. And I, so I think the district has a, a really big role. And I've seen schools um, move faster than districts 
in some cases. And so we wanna support those schools. So regardless of what's happening in the district, that the schools can still feel that they've, that they're, you know, they're making, making gains. So um, I love school districts. I want districts to continue. I think the work with Deeper Dozen and connecting the superintendents is really important. Um, and if it doesn't have an impact in the schools, then it doesn't matter a hell of beans. Schools are where the kids are. So you're right. I mean, that that's where the action has to be. But I think one of the powers uh, as well of, of your approach to, to networks has been even a subset within a school, even two or three or four teachers in a school can still be a node and still have great effect. It, it, it doesn't need everybody into the pool at the same time necessarily. You can be more subversive uh, than that and just start, um, you know, smaller. Yeah. Yeah. I know you talked to, to Tony recently, and at one point we had a, a small group, Tony, David Istance, Linda, and I, we called, called ourselves under the radar. I think we're not under the radar anymore, but Bly, Bly Frank was the, the dean at UBC who encouraged us to develop the leadership program there, also talked about infiltration uh, and that we were, you know, good on networks, but we were also pretty good on infiltration. So I think you're right, Rod. I think so. And, and one of the things I was going to say as well is that um, when we're talking about, about Deeper Learning Dozen and, um, and, and, and your work with networking is, is I think you've worked hard not to make, um, and this is part of the culture that you build around your networks, not to make it a, an exclusive club, but it's an ever-expanding network. And, and that, I think that's really important. It's not a, well, you're in or you're out. It's sort of once in, you get the tattoo, you're always in. And uh, and there's a lot of your tattoos around around the province and, and around the world of, I don't know how many, it would be an interesting study, how many schools don't have some connection th through people uh, who've been actively part of the network or quietly part of the network or were a part of the network a few years ago or whatever it might be. Um, your, your level of infiltration is pretty extraordinary <laughs> ar around this province and increasingly around the world. Uh, I have to say just uh, thank you, Rod. It's uh, uh, <laughs> a wonderful description. You know, the way I think about schools and districts, and in, in Sweden, it's municipalities, and in in Australia, it's uh, sort of a strange combination. They took parts of their system out, and now they call, you know, they say that they've got network leaders, but they look a lot like sort of assistant superintendents <laughs> or s some other layer. I, so I think there's good reasons to focus at the school level. but you know, five or seven years ago, we realized that there were some districts that had so many schools that were involved that we should do something with districts as well. And we worked with a researcher at the University of Victoria, Catherine McGregor, who has coined a phrase, uh, Jell and Rod, that I think you both really enjoy. She, she studied networks and she studied the way um, ideas move. And she coined this phrase of phrase of catalytic affiliation. And the next paper that she writes is going to be about that specifically. And I think it's got that, that kind of beautiful feeling of <laughs> energy and movement. And we, we did some work as, as a, you know, about 20 school districts together to say, okay, how can we build in some, uh, well, you would say symmetry. How can we make sure that the, you know, the, the learning that we're offering different roles is connected to the kind of learning that we want young people to be. So I think the difference is, though, that we don't, at least I don't, uh, and I know that Judy does, and I don't think Rod does either. I don't think of, of school districts as being above the school. 
I see them as being kind of interlocking circles uh, side by side, more like a Métis sash than a, than a ladder or a pole. So that the, the difficulty with, with thinking of it hierarchically in the States is that your key leaders often leave and then your schools are left, you know, uh, bereft because if they've had a good leader for a couple of years and then that person's gone, it's hard. And part of the network fabric, one of the things that we do have in BC that I think is a real asset is we have real political choices. You know, there's a business-oriented government and a social justice-oriented government, and we go back and forth. And so that means that we need to keep, you know, the policy environment might change, <laughs> but you need to keep people's spirits up and you need to get them. Every year we should be getting smarter from learning from each other and from good ideas like, you know, the ones that you've brought to us. Um, and I, I think that's more like the world, uh, I think, that works. And, and I think with your focus on emergence, you've, you've embraced that way of thinking. So sort of district schools and school districts kind of is the same thing in North America. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think where, where our internal uh, debate uh, is raging around this, it's, it's everyone starts by, you know, where we do agree, it's around we need flatter organizations and places that are very hierarchical don't seem to work very well in the long term for, for deep change um, or transformational change uh, because they tend to use the easy power routes to get things done rather than um, uh, through conversation, through persuasion, through really understanding the needs of the kids and, and, uh, and trying to work through that. This brings us to the lightning round. Oh no! And, and we have I like the sound effect. It's like Vancouver weather. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that water spout that you, you saw just just be, between yeah. Vancouver Island and uh, and uh, and Vancouver the other day. We have carefully curated some questions just for you two. Um, so if you've been studying up by listening to other podcasts in Lightning Round, uh, I'm sorry. We we've got some specially designed um, uh, questions, but we're going to start you off with an easy one. Uh, that you have heard before. What's one thing that lots of people in education think is right that you think is wrong? Linda, why don't we go first with you? I think there is um, a belief with lots and lots of people, especially maybe those of us who are teachers, that doing things quickly is a good thing. <laughs> and I think doing some things more slowly with more consideration and with a little bit of time to think about it and a companion with which to think about it is a better thing. I think that uh, a lot of people think that more is better. So if we have more sports, more activities, more courses, more options, more choices, um, kids will be happier and, and do better. And, and I think that, that we've learned and Rod, your leadership in this is that, you know, a, a crammed, jam curriculum full of all kinds of things doesn't uh, get us where we want to go. So, so I think that um, I think that I'm increasingly believing let's do fewer things in greater depth and, and provide a reasonable amount of choices for kids, but not, not so many that they become kind of paralyzed with an overload. Slow food movement. The best restaurants aren't usually the ones with the biggest menu. They're the, they might have a smaller menu, but uh, some, some, amazing uh, quality. 
All right. Uh, second question. Uh, what's one thing that the two of you disagree about? <laughs> Helvetica. I, <laughs> I, I have some Swiss ancestry and I love Helvetica for genetic reasons and aesthetic reasons. Uh, well, well, clearly we've just written a book, right? So we, we've been uh, arguing over commas and semicolons and dashes and, uh, uh, you know, APA format. So, uh, and, and I want to say that I hold the pen on the final edit. So, so Linda can say what she wants, but like, I'm going to get the comma where I want it. And we disagree about that too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, on a more substantive level, I, I actually can't think of uh, anything except that, you know, Linda likes martinis and I like like wine. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a disagreement. Those are just different choices. I was. It, it is interesting to look into your book partnerships. Uh, Sarah and I also are a very good team, but we definitely uh, disagree about the commas. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, an Oxford type. <laughs> it's important. Painful. Commas matter. I, um, I like journalistic style. <laughs> what's one thing you wish policymakers understood that they do not understand? <sighs> Only one. Uh, I, I wish that policymakers understood the potential of networks to achieve their goals instead of using the power lever all the time. Uh, particularly some of our, you know, I can speak more familiar way about provinces. You know, I see new governments coming in and using somewhat coercive powers when, when if, you know, if there were some people embedded in the system, they could use network powers, they could get the results that they're looking for, uh, and people could actually feel good about the change. So I just don't understand that. It seems like a mental block to me. And I'd say that policy borrowing and thinking it's going to work if we just transplant this idea from, you know, Finland or Singapore or wherever and just plump it on to name a location that it's going to work. I think that we need to understand that context really matters and, and that uh, kind of building on what Linda said, that also building from the strengths of the system rather than focusing on, on the deficits uh, is much more um, empowering for the people that you know, are working in it. So building on the strengths, uh, recognizing the strengths, and also not kind of having these blanket statements that, that uh, Kind of sweep everybody with the same brush and this is the way it is but rather being much more nuanced about the things that that are working and the things that we can can move forward on last question what's a new and upcoming book that you think maybe we should be reading <laughs> <laughs> soon I told you it was tailored <laughs> can you think of any <laughs> Well, it's, there's, there, we're really looking forward to Joe Crona's book, uh, which will be out in 2023, uh, developing kind of an anti-racist stance in Canada. So that one. And yeah, we're excited about our book. It's going to be out in May, and it's called uh, uh, Leading Through Spirals of Inquiry for Equity and Quality. And it's, it's based on what we've learned over the last you know, 20 plus years in both working with, with networks and with leadership development and with, with inquiry. 
and trying to illustrate um, just what what school leaders do that make a difference in their own setting. So yeah, it'll be out in May. We're excited. And it's sort of for beginners, I think. I know um, we tried to get a, a feeling for somebody who would be friendly to the work, who'd heard about it, but wanted to get started. So it's sort of our best advice. And it was it was fun to read. We did have lots of micro agreements and disagreements. Like one, one of the disagreements that we had is whether we should name the schools and the people in them. And, you know, just things like that, like what are the strengths and weaknesses of those kinds of approaches. But there's, I think there's, last time I counted, there's 27 or 37 like micro vignettes and, um, and you know, and lots of, um, I've always appreciated Michael Fullen's reference list. So lots of useful references where people can go deeper if they choose to. Well, thank you both uh, for taking some time to be with us today. Uh, we have learned a lot and enjoyed ourselves. Well, we have too. So thank you very much, Jal and, and Ron. And really, my face is aching. I've been smiling so much <laughs> and also nodding like a bobblehead at everything that uh, that both of you said. But Rod, I noticed that your, your head nods too. So I feel like I'm in good company. Anyway, thank you. Yeah, it was fun. It, it almost feels like we're back in San Antonio on the river. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. This is Rod Allen. And this is John Maida. And this has been Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today, we were joined by Judy Halbert and Linda Kayser. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>